Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, the fallout from the Mark Norman case, some pretty big questions still remain. Also, a closer look at why so many religious groups in Canada are taking advantage of federal help in beefing up their security. Plus, a Facebook co-founder now says the social media giant has become a monopoly and needs to be broken up. A lot of interesting follow today concerning the uh, case of Vice Admiral Mark Norman. A lot of questions still going forward, but it appears as though Alberta's new premier, Jason Kenney, had a, a more central role in this case collapsing than, than maybe we realize. Now, I think people who, who've been following Jason Kenney's career might recall him being the Minister of National Defense. And that perhaps then these questions around acquiring a supply ship might be relevant to his term in office. Apparently, it is quite relevant. Uh, Jason Kenney himself tweeted out uh, late yesterday, quote, I am proud to stand with Vice Admiral Mark Norman. And Premier Kenny links to a piece in the National Post from John Iveson, uh, who writes about how the new evidence that exonerated Mark Norman may date from Stephen Harper's time as prime minister. It also raises another curious question about this whole investigation, because it doesn't appear that anybody with the RCMP actually spoke with anybody from the conservative government. But of course, this is when that decision was made on acquiring this supply ship, which is at the center of the case. So as John Iveson writes in the National Post, Jason Kenney was at a Battle of the Atlantic dinner at the Canadian War Museum in late April 2015 when he got to talking to Vice Admiral Mark Norman, then commander of the Royal Canadian Navy. Uh, Kenney was defense minister, was mulling the problem of how to supply the Navy with food, fuel, and ammunition. There was a fire uh, on board Canada's only serviceable supply ship, and therefore it was decommissioned. Now, some top officials in the Department of National Defense wanted a 36-month process to upgrade the Navy's supply capacity. Kenny didn't like the idea of waiting three years. Neither, it emerged, did Norman. He recommended that the government go with a proposal from Davy Shipbuilding in Quebec to buy a commercial container ship and convert it. Uh, Kenny said this week, quote, it was clear that the Davy proposal was the only way to get the necessary equipment as quickly as possible. So based on Norman's recommendation, Kenny took the proposal to cabinet and was given approval to fast track the purchase. He says, quote, it turned out to be the right call because it came in on budget and on time. So this is actually a good news story about some common sense prevailing uh, in the Canadian forces and allowing the Navy to acquire something it needed in a relatively quick timeline. But of course, when the Liberals came into office... Uh, they were concerned about this, were concerned that Irving's shipbuilding had been frozen out and were prepared to put the whole thing on hold. Now, that got leaked to the media, and that began this whole fiasco. So, Mark Norman was accused of leaking this information to the media, but a whole lot of other people knew what was going on. So it's not clear why they zeroed in on him, or even why it was so serious to rise to this level that we would have to put this guy through hell, charging him with a crime, only to have the whole thing collapse. 
Um, another interesting piece in the National Post today looking at how maybe the liberals might have dodged a political bullet by not having this trial go forward. But there are still some very awkward and uncomfortable questions uh, hanging over all of this. And those answers may come out at some point. Uh, Matt Gurney, a columnist with the National Post, nationalpost.com, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Matt, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the program. Good to be here. There are some pretty big questions here, Matt, in terms of how, how we got in this mess in the first place, what happened with this case. I mean, what stands out to you as sort of the most important questions at the moment? Um, well, there's a couple that I think are, are really important. One of them is immediate, and one of them is more longer term. The immediate one, and I, I acknowledge this is not of national interest, but it's going to be something that has to be fixed quickly, is what we're going to do with Admiral Norman. Now that he is cleared, now that the charges against him are, are stayed, there will be no trial going forward. Military regulations are actually clear on this. He was relieved from duty because he was under investigation. The investigation is over, and he is an innocent man. Legally speaking, mm-hmm. there's no reason he cannot be returned to duty. And what's interesting is that according to the letter of the law, according to military regulation, it's not even a matter that he can be returned to duty. He will be returned to duty. He was the second highest ranked officer in the Canadian Armed Forces. He was the deputy commander of the entire military. Where do you put a guy like that? Yeah. Like, if he was just some captain or major or lieutenant commander, you could find a job for him to do somewhere. But this is like saying, you know, the, the vice president of this company is coming back to work, but we've appointed a new vice president, because that's what happened two years ago. So that's the first question the military has to figure out. The other question, though, and it's going to be long-term, and the impact of it, I have no idea what it's going to be, is that yesterday... After he got the good news, Admiral Norman said, I've got a story to tell, and I'm going to tell it. And his lawyer, Marie Heinen, who's just this uh, incredibly effective defense counsel, had launched a whole hell of a lot of artillery at the prime minister's office, saying that there was bad faith actions by uh, people in and around the prime minister. Well, does that sound at all familiar to you? A guy coming out of a legal proceeding saying there's something to say about the prime minister here? So I don't know what's going to be said. Who who knows, right? I would imagine right now every media outlet in the country is angling to get that first Mark Norman exclusive interview. But what he says could potentially be explosive. And when you look at the polls right now already in this country... I don't know how many more explosions the good ship liberal can take. Well, no kidding. And I mean, it, it certainly was shaping up to be an awkward trial for the government. And I think that's what's fueling suspicion, maybe, that there, there was pressure to make it all go away. I mean, if even if we take everybody at their word that there was no pressure to drop this case, uh, nothing political in terms of, you know, avoiding this the spectacle of this trial, th- there's certainly a lot of political elements to this story. I mean, you know, the, the amount of documentation there was uh, around this case, the, the conversation that were taking place at the highest level about all of this, it does seem very unusual, doesn't it? At the very least, it asks questions that no one has been willing to answer yet. I don't know enough about it, Rob, and I'm not trying to dodge your question here. I don't know enough about this to know if it's unusual or not, but I do know it seems weird. And the Prime Minister and his officials... They 
probably would have done themselves a lot of favors along the way with both SNC Lavalin and perhaps now with Admiral Norman if they just were as open and transparent as they promised Canadians they would be, right? I mean, even if there's some stuff in there that is embarrassing, I think they would have been better off, particularly in the context of SNC Lavalin, of just being more honest with it earlier. And I wonder, and it's speculation, man, I don't know. But I wonder if we're going to have the same situation here. Is this going to be the same thing, where maybe there's a very reasonable explanation for all of this, but by saying nothing, the prime minister is making his life harder for himself? Yeah. And hey, maybe, there's, maybe there is misconduct. Maybe there's smoke here because there is fire. And the reason they ain't saying anything is because there's no good explanation for it. That's very possible, too. But what I thought was interesting, and it speaks to this point, forget what the truth of the matter is. In politics, perception matters. And the public could easily perceive that there's a problem here. Yesterday, moments after Norman walks out of the courthouse, the prime minister is scrumming at Parliament Hill. And he just kept saying, independent investigation, independent investigation, no interference from my office. In question period in Parliament yesterday, no fewer than three liberal cabinet ministers used the word independent or independently at least 15 times. Yes, I actually did count. I'm that much of a nerd. I went into the answered record and I did a word search for it. So they, they're aware of the danger here. They know what the perception is. They're trying to get out in front of it. And now I guess we wait to see what Admiral Norman has to say. What's interesting, too, and you've written a lot about the issue of military procurement and what a terrible job we do in that area. When it came to acquiring a, a supply ship and, you know, the, the suggestion from Mark Norman himself that the government uh, could very quickly acquire what the Navy needed, and that's exactly how it un- unfolded, of course, and that, that later led to the new government having some second thoughts about that deal and then, then creating this whole quagmire. You know, the takeaway from the story, though, is that somebody in the military had a good idea for cutting through all the red tape around this stuff. And it was, you know, we actually have this ship in in use now. Yeah, and I think you've just nailed what, in my opinion, is actually the meta story here. Like, we can can all get excited about the, the political intrigue and the back and forth over Admiral Norman. And I'm not saying you shouldn't. It's a big story. It's a big deal. But there is in the background what I think is a bigger story. To try and condense 15 years of historical context into a soundbite here, let me try to describe for your listeners what we're talking about here. The entire scandal revolved around the efforts of first the conservatives and then the liberals to convert a civilian ship, bought just, hey, a company was operating it, didn't need it anymore, Canada bought it, and then gave it to one of our shipyards to convert to a military vessel because we needed supplies for the Navy. This is a boring job for the Navy. It's not sexy. It's not cool. But it's essential. Supply ships allow our ships to operate at sea anywhere in the world. We need them. And we had been trying to get them since 2004. It was Paul Martin who came up with the original plan to go out and get new supply ships. And we couldn't do it. Our procurement system is so broken that even though we started the project in 2004, in 2015, both of our old supply ships, and we're talking like my mother was in kindergarten, literally, when these things were built. These these ships date back to the mid-1960s. They had rusted out. They weren't Mm -hmm. safe to operate anymore. One of them had an engine room fire. The other one's hull was literally corroded. So we had to pull them out of service without replacements. We as a country could not build two relatively simple Navy supply ships in 11 years of trying. That is what set up the panic to convert a civilian ship. 
that is what led to all the, the scandal with Mark Norman here. Let's, by all means, get to the bottom of what happened in Ottawa over the last couple of years, but let's not lose sight of the fact that if this country was even halfway decent at getting the military the equipment it needed, there never would have been a scandal, an arrest, a suspension from duty, and a trial to begin with. Well, that's just it. And so Mark Norman, it seems as though his only motivation was to help the Navy get what it needed. No no personal motivation here, no way in which he personally stood to benefit or, or profit from any of this. Uh, and, and it turned into this big scandal. Look, uh, things get leaked in Ottawa all the time. The new government came in. They were maybe rethinking whether this was the right way to go or whether another company had maybe been, uh, you know, given the shaft in, in this whole process. Um, a lot of people seem to know about all of these deliberations. And so the idea that, that somebody leaks something to the media, Matt, you've worked in the media long enough. You get those phone calls. You know about those those brown envelopes. I mean, in, in that context, does anything here seem like we're talking about criminal behavior? No, no, ultimately it, it didn't. And I think one of the interesting things about this case, Rob, is how quickly that uh, people on the outside, people who were not involved, people who had no stake in the matter, like neutral arbiters, people who were familiar with these matters, looked at the Crown's case. When the Crown began disclosing their documents, uh, the, the evidence that underlied the case, which had to come out in open court, some of the investigative work the RCMP had done, people a lot smarter than me and a lot more knowledgeable of this stuff than I were were looking at this and going, how the hell did they ever get permission to go forward with this case on this flimsy a ground? There was nothing there that warranted any of this and that's why that's why no one's really all that surprised the case fell through i mean i bet you admiral norman is relieved but based on what was known and the damage marie hanine was doing to the crown's case here if this thing hadn't been withdrawn it was going to be a massacre in open court and look admiral norman obviously has been spared that just as a spectator though man i would have liked to have seen that yeah, no kidding. Well, we'll see where it all goes from here. A lot of questions still remain. Uh, folks can read uh, your thoughts again, nationalpost.com. Matt Gurney, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us here. My pleasure. Have a good one. All right, you too. There you go, Matt Gurney, columnist with the National Post, nationalpost.com. Uh, this next story is a sad commentary on the world we live in, but it is the reality of today that houses of worship, which should be places where where believers can go and, and worship safely have been targeted for acts of violence, horrific violence, synagogues, mosques, churches. We've seen numerous examples of this, uh, even just in recent months, as well as recent years. Uh, now, since 2012, Public Safety Canada has been providing funding to upgrade security at religious institutions. In 2017, uh, the amount of money in that program was doubled. Global News has been tracing where that money is going, the work being done in certain religious communities in Canada to make their houses of worship safer. Joining us to talk more about all of this is Stuart Bell, investigative journalist with Global News, more at globalnews.ca. Stuart, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Uh, so Public Safety Canada doubled this amount in 2017. Now, that was just uh, in the aftermath of the uh, mosque massacre in Quebec City, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. And you can see how over the years the funding has kind of uh, uh, gone to different communities depending on those types of incidents. So yes, after the mosque uh, shooting in Quebec City, uh, the, the funding was doubled and there was a lot of interest from the Muslim community in 
using that program to try and get uh, security upgrades in their institutions. Right, and 2017 kind of stands out where, you know, if we look at the, the various communities that are submitting these applications, uh, it was overwhelmingly from the Muslim community in 2017, or at least, um, you know, the, the early part of 2017 as, as compared to, to other years. Yeah, and in fact, when we look at all the years, one of the things we've discovered is that uh, about 90% of the, it's been about $7 million that's been allocated by the federal government so far to different organizations to upgrade their security. Um, and about 90% of that has gone to the Jewish and Muslim communities, which makes sense because they are, in fact, the number one targets of religious hate crimes. But they're not the only targets. In fact, um, together they account for about 35% of the um, of the hate crimes documented by Stats Canada. These are hate crimes that are reported to police. So there's clearly a lot of other communities that aren't benefiting from this program uh, at this time. And that's one of the issues that I think arises from uh, the reporting that we did today. All right, so how does this program work? There's a fixed amount set aside each year, I think, and then applications can be submitted? Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, anybody who... It's it's for not just religious organizations, it's for, quote, community gathering spaces. And if they can uh, convince the government that they're at risk of hate crimes, they can receive up to $100,000. And it's a matching kind of program, so that would be 50% of the cost. The institution, the organization itself, would have to cover the other 50%. Uh, and that's only... It only uh, currently pays for physical security uh, infrastructure, so it would have to be things like CCTV cameras is a common one, uh, anti-graffiti paint, and um, uh, lock uh, lock systems, electronic locks, those kinds of, kinds of things. Right. So if, um, if, if a group or a church or an organization or a house of worship, whatever it is, if they believe they need to go even further, like to have security guards, armed security, that that goes outside the the scope of this then, does it? Yeah, and even training, uh, and this is one of the issues that's that's come up, especially since the attack in uh, Pittsburgh last October, uh, where training was an issue there. Uh, And so some some of the organizations like uh, CJA are now saying, look, um, allow organizations to use this money to train their staff, even some of their congregations, to uh, respond if an incident should arise, because that, um, you know, a CCTV camera is not going to stop a determined attacker, but uh, knowing how to respond if an incident happens could save lives. So these are things that are being discussed. The government says looking at possibly changing or opening up the program a bit more to be more flexible um, to allow for those kinds of um, things to be funded. What about the screening of, of applicants, Stuart? You noted your story where, where funding under this program has been provided to, to a couple of organizations uh, that have been, shall we say, involved in some controversy. Yeah, well, it's another thing that we found in our, our investigation of this program is there does not seem to be any screening, uh, nor does the government believe that it has the capacity or the need to do screening. So, um, for example, as you mentioned, um, one of the organizations, uh, I should point out that most of the groups that got funding 
uh, are charities in good standing. They're federally regulated charities, and there's no problems. But um, with others, there are some issues. Um, there was one that had its uh, charity status revoked for not filing its paperwork to the Canada Revenue Agency. And there's two others where um, the Canada Revenue Agency audited their books and found not only issues of misspending and improper, or I guess non-compliance with uh, charities' regulations, but uh, they raised concerns about terrorism-related links. Both those charities were uh, subjected to uh, penalties or fines. They were fined by the CRA, um, and yet they were both able to uh, to obtain security funding from Public Safety Canada. Mm-hmm. And so you have a situation where, on one hand, one government department is effectively fining an organization for noncompliance with uh, federal regulations, and yet the other is giving it money um, at the same time, which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense and suggests that uh, one hand isn't talking to the other. All right. In terms of how effective this program is, though, and, and maybe that can be difficult to measure in terms of whether we're deterring hate crimes or whether it's making it any easier for police to investigate hate crimes. Uh, but for some of the groups that have received this funding that you've spoken with, is, is this giving them some peace of mind or, or how are they feeling about it? You know, that probably is what it's all about in the end. Um, because, like I say, CCTV cameras, uh, surveillance cameras are not necessarily going to stop somebody. Um, they do perhaps help with uh, lower-level things, like if uh, there are deterrents against um, against kind of hateful acts that you you see from time to time, um, graffiti and things like that that are you know uh, completely unwarranted. So a camera, a camera system, signs saying the cameras are up can deter that kind of thing. Whether it deters violence, I don't know. But at least, um, you know, I think there is a sense among some communities right now of unease, even going to a place of worship, which is supposed to be a very you know, peaceful place uh, where you can, you know, reconnect with your spirituality, your community. Um, and a lot of people are feeling uneasy because of the violence we've seen. You know, a Catholic church, churches targeted Sri Lanka, yeah. New Zealand mosque attack, Quebec, uh, in California recently, a synagogue in the Pittsburgh synagogue. You know, these are all things that show that um, there are people that view these things as targets, and that makes people understandably uneasy. And to some extent, that may be the most, uh, you know, the, the greatest benefit of a program like this is at least giving peace of mind to people that they can... Uh, they can worship and not be looking over their shoulder all the time. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's sad that it's needed, but that's that's the reality of the world we're living in. Uh, more at globalnews.ca. Stuart, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Take care. Uh, National investigative journalist uh, for Global News, Stuart Bell. You can find his piece again uh, at globalnews.ca. There's no question that Facebook is big, it's powerful, it's influential. Question, though, is it too big, too powerful, too influential? How do we know? How do we measure that? I mean, that's inherently subjective. I, I, I mean, I think the default position on the part of government should be to leave the market alone. There is an argument, I suppose, to be made for intervening in the free market to protect the free market. In other words, breaking up monopolies. But is Facebook a monopoly? 
I mean, if, if, there's, if there's doubt as to whether that's the case, maybe we should err on the side of that because of the precedent we set by intervening and breaking up the company. But there have been calls to break up Facebook. Uh, notably, U.S. Democratic presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren has called for that. Uh, certainly given uh, Facebook's recent uh, expulsion uh, of certain figures on the far right, there is, there's been conservative criticism uh, of Facebook and whether it's too powerful, whether it needs to be regulated. Today in the New York Times, there's an op-ed piece, a pretty lengthy op-ed piece from Chris Hughes, who was a co-founder of Facebook. He writes on Twitter, I'm calling for breaking up Facebook in an essay in the New York Times. Facebook has become too big and too powerful, and it's part of a trend in our economy of an increasing concentration of corporate power. We can fix this, break the company up, and regulate it. So this is the path we need to go down. Joining us for some thoughts on all this, very pleased to welcome to the program Jennifer Huddleston, a research fellow with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Jennifer, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me today. Where, where should the threshold be when it comes to this kind of, of dramatic market intervention? Well, traditionally what we've looked at is the consumer welfare standard. Are consumers being harmed by this behavior? Is the market being harmed by this behavior? Are we seeing anti-competitive behavior? It's interesting in technology because things move so rapidly. In fact, 12 years ago, we were seeing articles with titles like, Will MySpace Ever Lose Its Monopoly? (laughs) Is MySpace a natural monopoly? And today we're seeing similar arguments occur just with different names. So... In your view, then, does, does Facebook, given, you know, its size, its, its practices, does it, does it come close to that in any way, in your view? I think it, I don't think it does. I think it would be interesting. You know, I, I don't necessarily, I, I'm a researcher. I, I don't speak for Facebook. I don't know mm-hmm. their exact business practices. I know what I've seen in the press, like all the rest of us. But we aren't really seeing consumers being harmed. We're seeing consumers make a choice. Um, One interesting thing is you pointed out that this op-ed was announced on Twitter. So you have other social media networks serving (laughs) serving other purposes that certainly could be used for similar things. When you look at messaging, you have a wide range of messaging options available as well. When consumers are choosing a service that has a lot of different options in one place, they're making a choice to do that because they enjoy the convenience and efficiency of it. We've also seen that time and again, consumers will leave social media platforms when there are other options available. So I don't think we've really seen a true monopoly occur in this case. Yeah, I mean, monopolies can occur. Ideally, you know, in in a free market, they wouldn't. Uh, And and certainly, I think governments at times have have helped create monopolies or impose their own. Uh, So it's their case to be made when when there is clear evidence that a monopoly has emerged for some, some regulation or even breaking up a company. Again, it would depend on the specific situation. And I mean, we've seen antitrust be used in the past based on that consumer welfare standard and on harm to the market. We definitely do need antitrust in some case, but in the case of big tech, the the usual requirements don't seem to be there. So is there a cause, the short of breaking up Facebook and, and you know, the, the calls to, to have some further regulation of social media to more tightly regulate their practices or to, to mandate better privacy protection or to, to mandate freedom of speech, short of breaking up the company, do you see any basis for any kind of further regulation of social media? 
Well, we want to be careful with what happens with these calls for regulation, particularly for people that want a more competitive market. Companies like Google and Facebook and other big tech players can spend the resources to comply with complicated regulations. We saw this recently in Europe with the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, where smaller players in some cases chose to exit the market, and larger players like Google and Facebook were able to retain their market share in things like targeted advertising. So in some ways, regulation can actually be a gift to these large players and hurt the next generation of technology. One of the great things about innovation has been that it has rather low barriers to entry, especially when it comes to online services. So ideally, we want to see a world where we aren't thinking just about the current big players, but how do we get that next better technology as well? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you could call that unintended consequences where we're just looking at the established players and and how to regulate them, but we are creating barriers, and and those barriers might actually discourage the very kind of competition we want then. Right, and that's not to say, you know, we do have ways of redressing these harms through things like consumer protection actions, through the FTC here in the U.S., or through other similar roles in Canada, where we look at when there has been harm to consumers, and either governments or courts are able to step in in those cases. But what they're really looking for is some kind of measurable harm. And, and yeah, and so you, you don't see it here then, at least not at this point. When it comes to the monopoly argument, again, it, it's I haven't necessarily reading the op-ed with what seems to be out there. There seem to be several competitors, and we shouldn't just focus on Facebook. We should be thinking about the next Facebook. Like I said, a decade ago, we were having these conversations about MySpace, Yahoo, and AOL, and were they too big to ever be toppled? And today, when we look at things, we're just having the conversation about an entirely different set of players. In fact... Just before Google launched, a headline ran about how Yahoo won the search wars. Could they ever be caught? Some say they're the next AOL. And here we are 10 years later, and most of those players that were in the headlines have been replaced. And in surveys, we see that consumers think that too. It's only a small percentage of consumers that don't think that today's tech giants could be replaced by a better product in the future. Some important points. More at Mercatus.org. Jennifer, thanks for your insight on this. Appreciate making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks. Have a wonderful afternoon. You as well. Jennifer Huddleston, a research fellow at Mercatus Center at George Mason University. So making the case that let's be very careful about jumping to conclusions uh, about a certain company being a monopoly when we don't really have evidence that that's the case or evidence of that consumer harm. So as big and as powerful as Facebook is, they, they haven't stopped Twitter from emerging or Snapchat from emerging. Now, you could argue that Facebook has far more people using it than use either of those two social media services. But is that because consumers have made a choice? People prefer to use Facebook over Twitter? Or is it because Facebook is limiting Twitter's ability to compete? And if so, what specifically are we alleging? So, yeah, look, I, I agree with her that we need to be very careful about going down this path. And there needs to be a clear-cut case that we've got a problem because that is a pretty dramatic kind of market intervention. And it can have a lot of unintended consequences. Let me play for you. This is uh, included with the op-ed that Chris Hughes wrote for the New York Times, a, a video op-ed where he spends uh, a few minutes talking about why he's concerned, why he feels almost a sense of personal responsibility given his involvement with the company in the early days. 
why he believes that Facebook needs to be reined in. When a single company dominates any market, they become susceptible to abusing their power. Social networking is like most other American industries. There used to be plenty of healthy competition, but now many industries are controlled by just one or two companies. Companies often create an illusion of choice. You think there are hundreds of beer brands out there, but they're all made by one or two companies. Why is this a problem? Well, when companies get too big, they get sloppy and careless. And that leads to things like poor privacy practices, enabling foreign actors to meddle in elections, the spread of violent rhetoric, fake news, and the unbounded drive to capture more of our data and attention. I often hear people say, I'm shutting down my Facebook account. Thank God for Instagram. Not realizing that Instagram is owned by Facebook. People are powerless in this situation because there's nowhere else to go. Monopolies stifle innovation. Facebook snatches up competitors by buying them before they get too big or by copying their innovations. Despite all the money and hype being poured into new startups, there hasn't been a single major social media platform launched since 2011. The harm goes beyond the economy though. It goes to democracy itself. When companies become empires, people are stripped of power. Facebook's employees write complex rules called algorithms that decide what you see in your newsfeed. Facebook can decide what messages get delivered and which don't, and what exactly makes for violent or inappropriate content. Even Mark himself has said that he and the Facebook team have too much power over speech. Facebook does have a board of directors, but Mark owns the majority of the shares. Unlike the leader of a democracy, there are no checks and balances on Facebook. Mark has no boss, and he cannot be fired. Listen, it'd be great if Mark could fix this himself, but this, ironically, is a problem he cannot solve. We need the government to intervene with two steps. First, the Facebook empire needs to be broken up. America's regulated corporate empires before, and we can do it again. This isn't unprecedented. And surprisingly, it often boosts the value of these companies in the long run. Federal Trade Commission can force Facebook to unwind its acquisitions of WhatsApp and Instagram. Then we'll see real competition around social media and digital messaging. Breaking up Facebook isn't a punishment for its economic success. It's a way to guarantee that other new companies can compete. We also need a new government agency to protect Americans from the overreach of Facebook and other companies like it. Think about it. We don't trust airlines or pharmaceutical companies to regulate themselves. And we shouldn't trust social media companies either. We need basic privacy protections and the ability for people to move their data around as they please. Right now, Facebook makes free speech decisions on its own with little accountability. Instead, we need government to set guidelines, not Facebook employees in Menlo Park. I don't think Mark's a bad guy. And I've made this decision to speak out because I feel a sense of responsibility for what Facebook has become. And to be honest, I'm angry that Mark's obsession with growth led him to sacrifice security for clicks. I think we all want to live in a country where David can take on Goliath, where a kid with a smart idea in a dorm room can start a billion dollar company. We've strayed from that ideal and breaking up and regulating Facebook will help put us back on that path. All right, so that's uh, part of the video op-ed from uh, Facebook co-founder Chris Hughes. And maybe calling him co-founder maybe overstates his role, but he was certainly involved. I mean, there, there are different issues that come up. I mean, look, if Facebook is violating Canada's privacy laws or Europe's privacy laws or privacy laws in the U.S. or anywhere else, then, well, okay, let's, let's deal with that. 
Uh, but that, that's different from calling them a monopoly. So are they? Do we need to break up the company? Should Instagram and WhatsApp, should that be pried out of Facebook's hands, sold off to two other companies in order to make things more fair? Now, he mentions Google. Google is a, a mammoth company in and of itself. And Google uh, had, for a while, Google Plus. Remember that? That was supposed to be uh, their own version of, of social media, and nobody liked it. Well, nobody used it. <laughs> Google certainly had the resources to compete with Facebook. They just didn't have a good product. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.